The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. As I said, my hope today is that our understanding and appreciation of the Lord's Supper would grow. And the way that I want to do this is by looking at that original communion meal, that original Lord's Supper with Jesus and the disciples, and understand what it meant to them, what Jesus was conveying when he had performed the Lord's Supper. And what we're going to see is that there is a past, present, and future reality to the Lord's Supper, that when we take it, it should take us to the past, it should take us to the future, and the present and the future, and we should appreciate God's grace in all of those situations. What we'll see is that the Lord's Supper is rooted in our past, the story of God's people, that the Lord's Supper is given for our present to strengthen us in our faith, and that the Lord's Supper points us to our future. First, let's look and see. The Lord's Supper is rooted in our past. The passage today starts in Matthew 26, which simply says, now as they were eating. Now, the disciples and Jesus were not eating just any meal. They were eating the Passover meal. All of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that talk about the Lord's Supper, make sure that we understand that this is the Passover meal that Jesus is celebrating. It is crucially important for us to understand what the Lord's Supper means. So, What is the Passover meal? The Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of the Passover meal. So what is the Passover meal? Well, the Passover meal is instituted in Exodus chapter 12. Some of you probably remember the story uh, with Charlton Heston as Moses and uh, that story or from the biblical account. But, But God raises up Moses. God's people have been slaves in Israel for 400 years. And God raises up Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, Let my people go, right? You know how that goes. And so Moses comes and says, let the people of God go. Nine times Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let the people go. Nine times the Pharaoh says no. Nine times God sends plagues upon Egypt. And then God says, I have just one more plague and the people will go free. And so Moses goes and he warns Pharaoh of the final plague, that the oldest in every household will die that night if he does not let the people of God go. Pharaoh again rejects the offer. He keeps the people of God as slaves. And then God instructs Moses to go and instruct his people that they should do the following, that they should go, that at twilight they shall sacrifice a unblemished male lamb that they are to kill it without breaking any bones, and then they're to do this. Exodus 12, verse 7. You can follow along on the screen with me. It says, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. This is what Jesus was doing with his disciples. Verse 11 It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. 
I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And here's where it gets its name. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Lord brings upon the land a just judgment of death. But it's going to pass over the Israelites. And the question is, why does God's just judgment of death pass over the Israelites? Is it because they are such good people, such wonderful people? Is it because they are Israelites? And the answer is no. The reason why the judgment of God passes over these households is because of the blood of the unblemished land spread on the doorposts of their house. Death passes over. Some of you may be familiar with the Seder meal. Uh, the Seder meal is, is the, the Passover meal celebrated by Jews today. It was also celebrated back in the time of Jesus and even a hundred years before where they would go through this, this routine and they wouldn't just have the Passover meal. They would explain the Passover meal and the patriarch of the family would explain it step by step. And there was this very precise script that they would follow. Matter of fact, the word Seder means order. And so it was an orderly meal with uh, explicit directions to be given. But when Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, when he is the patriarch leading them through this Passover meal, Jesus doesn't only remember the Passover, Jesus redefines it. Jesus changes it. He changes the hundred years, hundreds of years of tradition in a moment. First, we see it with the bread. At the Passover meal, the leader would take the unleavened bread and he would hold it up and he said, this is the bread of affliction, which our ancestors ate when they left Egypt. This is the bread of affliction. But Jesus holds up the bread. And what does he say? Well, we see in Luke 22, a more detailed account of this. In Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19, it says, and Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And gave it to them saying, this is my body. This is my affliction, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Just as the body, the bread is broken, we see that, that Christ himself was afflicted on the cross. And so what Jesus is saying is that this bread no, no longer primarily points to the exodus of Israel. It points to me. It points to my affliction on the cross. And so we see he transforms the meaning of the bread. He also transforms the meaning of the wine. In the Seder meal, there are four cups that are drinking throughout the, the process of eating this meal. And they are explained every time. And these cups have names. And they're named after the four promises God makes to the people of Israel before their exodus. They're, na they're named after the promises in Exodus 6, which are, I will bring out. I will deliver, I will redeem, I will take. And so Jesus is walking through the Passover meal with his disciples. And most people say when Jesus institutes this cup, it's at the third cup, the cup of redemption, the cup of salvation, the cup of blessing. And instead of sticking to that script, Jesus says this, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
The way Jesus was changing the Passover meal would have been appalling to everyone. The religious leaders of the time would have accused Jesus of blasphemy because Jesus is saying this no longer points to the deliverance that God brought, but this points to me. And indeed, they are correct. It is blasphemy unless, of course, it is true. Let me illustrate this way. We have something called the Pledge of Allegiance. Most of you know the Pledge of Allegiance, and you know it because you said it in grade school growing up. The Pledge of Allegiance actually is not too old. Um, It was adopted by Congress in 1942, so it's about 70 years old. It was changed in the 50s. But it's something that we are all used to saying. We could all, all probably recite it now, even though it's probably been years since you have said it. Well, imagine if a principal of a school, uh, let's just, can I pick on you, Ron? Ron is kind of a principal of a school. He's a headmaster of a school. Let's say Ron is headmaster of Providence Academy. He says, you know what? Um, we're going to change this, right? We're going to change the Pledge of Allegiance. No longer is the Pledge of Allegiance going to focus on our nation and on the flag. Now the Pledge of Allegiance is going to focus on me, Right? And so he, he brings all the kids out and he says, okay, let's teach you the new Pledge of Allegiance. The new Pledge of Allegiance goes like this. I pledge allegiance to Ron Young and to all which he stands. One nation under Ron who gives liberty and justice for all, right? Who would be okay with this besides Ron? Who would be okay with this, right? Nobody. The kids would laugh at him. The parents would be irate. Right? If they didn't fire Ron right away, the school would decline, it would go bankrupt, and there would be the end of Providence Academy, right? Because we can't just change the words. Because the words mean so much. The meaning means so much. Jesus doesn't only put himself in the place of a nation, in the, in the respect that a nation deserves, but he places himself in the place of God. This would have been completely appalling to people. This would have been revolutionary. They would have killed him for this. And in fact, they did. Jesus takes the Passover and he redefines it. He shows that, yes, you did celebrate the Passover to to celebrate the deliverance of your ancestors out of 400 years of slavery. But there is a greater deliverance today the deliverance from the slavery of sin and the deliverance from death itself. Yes, you celebrate this Passover meal with the blood of the land to celebrate that the Lord had passed over his just judgment of death over the houses of Israel, over those who by faith put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. But I tell you today, there is a greater lamb that sits before you, Jesus says, an unblemished lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who wipes his blood on the doorposts of your heart. And so Jesus redefines the Lord's Supper. We see an illustration of it in the Exodus, but we see the full meaning of it in the cross. And so we see the Lord's Supper is rooted in our past, in the story of the people of God. The Lord's Supper is also given for our present time. When Jesus celebrated the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal, it was the night before he was to be crucified, maybe 18, 20 hours before his crucifixion. 
And as Jesus celebrates this Passover meal, it is kind of the last calm before the storm. After this Passover meal, all hell breaks loose. Literally, the judgment of God comes upon Christ, but chaos strikes the land. The disciples become confused. They become scared. Jesus actually comes to them and he says, all of you will desert me. In my deepest moment of need, all of you will leave me. And so there is chaos. And the disciples are wondering, what is going on? A leader, a king, a teacher, he's not supposed to die after three years of ministry. And he's certainly not supposed to die like that, naked and ashamed in front of all of these people. They would think that it was a great accident. That Jesus dying on the cross was not a victory, but it was defeat. And so Jesus institutes this Lord's Supper, and in it, he is giving them confidence that what is about to happen, the crucifixion, is nothing less than the plan of God, is nothing less than the fulfillment, the culmination, the center point of God's story of redemption. And so Jesus institutes this Lord's Supper Supper to remind them that this is not an accident. This is the plan of God. This is what everything pointed to. Jesus actually uh, uses some phrases when he's instituting the Lord's Supper to show us that the cross is the center point of God's redemption. There's two that I want to point out to you fairly quickly. The first is this. He talks about his blood is the blood of the covenant, the blood of the covenant. This is only used one other time in the Old Testament. It's used after the uh, Israelites are delivered out of Egypt. Uh, They go, they're at Sinai. The Ten Commandments are given. God makes a covenant with them, says, I will be your God. You will be my people. Here are the stipulations, the Ten Commandments. You must keep these. And then we see this in Exodus 24, 7 through 8. It says, then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant, that is the Ten Commandments, and some other laws, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. God makes a couple covenants, a handful of covenants throughout the scriptures. All of them are ratified with blood. And the reason why it is ratified with blood, because it is saying this is the penalty if either party does not keep its commitment. And here the people of God are saying, we are going to keep all the laws that God has instructed us. Now, if you are a student of the Old Testament, or even just a student of human nature, you know that there is no way they could keep the laws of God. They probably barely got past saying this before they were sinning in their hearts. And because of that, the covenant penalty, the blood that was sprinkled, the blood of the covenant must be paid. And Jesus was coming to pay that covenant penalty The blood of the covenant. Jesus is saying, I am the center point of redemption. The cross is the center point of redemption. He uses a second phrase. In the Gospel of Luke, he doesn't doesn't emphasize so much the blood of the covenant, but the newness of the covenant. That this is a new covenant. Again, this phrase only occurs one time in the Old Testament. It's in Jeremiah 31. 
And what's funny is in Jeremiah 31, it actually refers to the Lord's Supper, but also refers backwards to Exodus 24, which we just read. Read along with me. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Why? (laughs) Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. It's referring back to Exodus 24. He goes on, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the last of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And then here's the part where Jesus is accomplishing this new covenant. He says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. How was this new covenant to be brought? How was the forgiveness of sins to come about? By the blood of the covenant. Jesus Christ is the blood of the new covenant, which brings about the forgiveness of sins. Jesus paid the price. He paid the covenant penalty for us, because we have disobeyed the law of God. You know, I think we understand this thought of a penalty. Um, If you've ever rented a place, there is a built-in penalty. I remember when Trish and I lived in Columbia, Missouri, we rented a beautiful duplex. And when you rent a place, you give them what? You give them the first month's rent, the last month's rent, and a deposit, usually equal to another month's rent, correct? And you sign this contract or this covenant that basically says, we will not destroy this place. And if we do, you get to keep our deposit, right? Well, Trish and I are moving in and we're like, oh, you know, that's nice. We'll have that, you know, six, $700 back when we move out. You know, we're, we're reputable people. We're clean people. We'll take care of the place. I mean, we're, we're educated. We're sophisticated, right? Well, there was no chance of us keeping that deposit. You know, as much as we intended to keep that place clean. We had dogs in there. We had me in there, you know, and, and, and you, if you do that, you're going to lose the deposit, right? That was the covenant penalty. Now, let's take the illustration one step further. What if the landlord comes and says, okay, you have destroyed this house. There is dog pee on the carpet, which there was. There, is, uh, there, is, there, are, there are little holes in the wall, which there were. Uh, you have drilled holes into the ceiling, which we did, right? Uh, it was to hang something. Okay. Anyways, he would have every right to say, there is no way I'm giving you back your deposit. And as a matter of fact, Trish and I didn't even ask for it because we knew we weren't getting it back. But what if he came and said, you know what? You do not deserve this deposit back. I have to spend hundreds and thousands of dollars to replace the carpet, you know, to repaint the walls, to fill in the holes, to replace the walls. What if he says, you know what? I am going to give you back this deposit anyways. I'm going to give it back to you, and I am going to absorb that debt. I am going to take on the hundreds and thousands of dollars of damage to give you back. I will take on that covenant penalty. This is what Christ did for us. We broke the law against him. He is our God. And yet he came and he took the covenant penalty upon himself. We thought, you know what? We can keep this. We're good people. We can keep the law, but none of us do. And yet Christ comes and he fulfills the law perfectly and he takes on the covenant penalty upon himself. 
Jesus is showing the disciples and he's showing us that the centerpiece of redemptive history is the cross. You know, there is no other thing which Jesus says, reenact this often, frequently. You know, we don't have to reenact his birth. We're not commanded to do that, although we usually do when it comes to Christmas. We don't have to reenact his miracles or, or reenact his, his, even his resurrection or his ascension into heaven. But what he says is you must reenact the cross. And we do this every week as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We have the visible reminder that the centerpiece of our faith is the cross of Jesus Christ. But more than that, it actually proclaims the Lord's death, is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, as often as you eat and drink, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This is such good news because what it means is even if a church does not preach the good news of the gospel from the pulpit, the good news is preached from the Lord's table. As there is this visible, tangible display of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we see the Lord's Supper is rooted in our past. It is given for our present to remind us of the centrality of the cross of Christ. Finally, the Lord's Supper points us to our future. Jesus ends the institution of the Lord's Supper by saying this in verse 29. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, on one hand, this statement is very sad and realistic. Jesus is acknowledging, I'm not going to drink the fruit of the vine again because I am going to die soon. It's kind of like someone on death row having their last meal, saying, this is my last meal before I die. And so in, in one way, it's very sad. But in another way, there is a great assurance in this statement, one that we should not miss. As I mentioned, all of the disciples, Jesus actually tells them, you are all going to leave me. You are going to abandon me in my deepest need, in my most hurtful point in life. You are going to flee. You are going to deny me. And they did. They slept when they were supposed to be awake, keeping watch. They, they, they fled from the soldiers. They came and seized him. Uh, Peter denied him three times. They were a horrible mess. They were a lot like me. They were a lot like you. And Jesus knew they were going to fail. And yet he gives this promise in the Lord's Supper. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with who? With you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is giving his disciples great hope. That even though they will mess up, even though they will abandon Jesus, even though they will sin again, when they celebrate this Lord's Supper, it is to be a reminder to them that they are headed for the marriage supper of the Lamb, that they are going to eat a great feast with Christ in heaven for all eternity. What a great assurance we have in this communion meal. That even though we sin, even though we abandon Christ by our deeds and our actions in our heart, that one day our relationship with him will be fully restored and we will sit with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me end with this illustration. Story of two brothers, Dick and Mac. And they opened a restaurant in 1940 in San Bernardino, California. And the name of the restaurant 
was McDonald's Barbecue. McDonald's Barbecue. And they served barbecue among a host of other things. But it started in 1940 with serving one client, with one customer. You probably know where this is going. The business erupted. Uh, in 1955, they opened up a second one in, in Des Plaines, Illinois. And then from there, it opened up 700 stores in the next 12 years. And now McDonald's has more than 33,000 restaurants in 119 countries and serves 68 million people daily. But it all started with one supper, with one meal given to one customer. You know, we call this the Last Supper. But indeed, it is also the first supper. It is the first supper of the covenant, and God's redemption spreads out throughout the world. More than 119 countries, millions of people today partaking of this Lord's Supper, celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, remembering that the center point of our faith is the cross of Jesus Christ. As we take this meal, God is not here physically, but he is here spiritually, nourishing our bodies, nourishing our spirits, our conscience, our souls to live for him, to trust in him, to rest in him. And so as we come to the Lord's table, we come by faith. Faith is what activates this blessing from God. And we come with faith remembering that the Lord's Supper is rooted in our story and the people of God, that he has delivered his people from Egypt, but has delivered his people from sin and death at the cross. We take this by faith, remembering that in the present, the centrality of the cross is what is preeminent in our faith, is what is preeminent in our life. And we also take this in faith, looking to the future, Reminding that this Lord's Supper foreshadows a great supper that is to come. The wedding supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord, we do again thank you for this Lord's Supper. We thank you that you have died. We thank you that this is not what is magical, these elements. But what is powerful is what it points to. It points to the cross. It points to your sacrifice on our behalf that you, the unblemished Lamb of God, came to satisfy the covenant punishment, to justify, to declare us righteous before God, that we indeed might live with you for all eternity and celebrate with you the marriage supper of the Lamb. Stir our hearts as we take it this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.